You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Today we're going to take you to the Pine Street Theater building in Southeast Portland as a way of exploring the city's rock music and food cultures over the decades and continuing today. But first, let's go back 92 years. It was December 11th, 1927, near the corner of Southeast 9th Avenue and Pine Street, just off Sandy Boulevard. As documented in an Oregon Journal newspaper photo that you can still find online, a crowd of people gathered that day outside a new building that was under construction for the ceremonial laying of its cornerstone. Many of those gathered were members of the Centenary Wilbur Methodist Church next door, for the new building, completed the following year in a Jacobethan style, with an irregular roofline and gabled dormers, stucco siding, and rounded arch entrances, was an annex to the church, providing the congregation with spaces for education and recreation, including a gymnasium. The old church itself, dating to 1890 and once known for attracting wealthy parishioners before the construction of Sandy Boulevard, would only stand for another 35 years, until its sanctuary was damaged in the Columbus Day storm of 1962 and the congregation eventually moved on. This annex of the Centenary Wilbur Methodist Church would be damaged by natural forces as well, a fire in 1977. But the building is made of concrete and it's pretty robust. It was salvaged and continued what had already become a very different identity as a series of music clubs. First, there had been the Ninth Street Exit, founded in 1968 by a namesake of mine but no relation, Paul Libby, as a coffeehouse that began hosting folk music performances. As a hotbed for progressive politics, the Ninth Street Exit also hosted the first meeting of the Northwest Gay Liberation Front. The building was also briefly used as a Waldorf school and then a small theater. But it really became known for a series of rock clubs, Some were short-lived, like, say, Rock Candy or Solid State. But most notably, this building became known in the 80s and 90s for two seminal clubs that together endured over two decades, the Pine Street Cafe and La Luna, and who together made music history. At the Pine Street Cafe, which operated from 1980 to 1991, you could have seen Nirvana, The Replacements, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, Megadeth, Ornette Coleman, and the Psychedelic Furs, not to mention seminal local punk band The Wipers. At La Luna, in operation between 1992 and 1999, you could have seen Radiohead, George Clinton, Sleater Kenny, Pavement, Wilco, Liz Fair, or Fugazi, not to mention local acts who broke big like Everclear, the Dandy Warhols, and the great Elliot Smith. In fact, you might say Elliot Smith's solo career really took off here, at a series of hushed shows in La Luna's smaller mezzanine space overlooking the main stage. 
Since then, the building's history has continued in a different kind of realm, as a destination for food lovers and a bit of a creative hotbed. The building was purchased in 2005 and lovingly renovated by Kenton Weems. His first new tenant was the acclaimed and highly popular Sympatica Dining Hall, which is founded by Ben Dyer, Jason Owens, and David Kreifels, and remained there until 2016. I remember once starting to get grumpy waiting an hour or so for a table at Sympatica, but then being cheered up by the incredible brunch I had. And a USA Today critic singled out the tapas dinner he had there as his favorite meal of the year. For many years, there was also a wonderful Japanese izakaya there too, biwa. I still remember the grilled pork belly appetizer I used to order there. More recently, Sympatica's owners have come back with a new venture, the La Luna Cafe. So today we're going to look at these twin music and culinary eras for the Pine Street Theater building and how its music and food eras represent a golden time for the city. In the late 80s and 90s as a hotbed of music and today is a culinary capital. Our first interview features a local legend, musician and artist Sean Krogan, who has performed on this stage as a member of beloved local bands like Cracker Bash and has also been an audience member himself at countless Pine Street and La Luna shows. Sean also remembers going to the building as a kid before that church fire. Our second interview features Ben Dyer, one of the founders of Sympatica and La Luna Cafe. Ben has his own memories of going to shows at La Luna. In an Oregonian article from 2016 about the new cafe, he mentioned once seeing funk legend George Clinton play there for five hours. 1927, the year of the building's birth, was a tumultuous time in history, or at least on the eve of one, as a booming Roaring Twenties was about to give way to the Great Depression. It was also a time when Portland is going through one of its biggest growth spurts. A lot of these same themes are playing out today, which is all the more reason it's nice to come upon an old building like this. Today, the Pine Street Theater building is part of a burgeoning Lower Burnside area, near destinations like the Jupiter Hotel and the James Beard award-winning chef Gabriel Rucker's restaurant, Le Pigeon, and not far from a cluster of new residential towers at the Burnside Bridgehead. But it's also still a transitioning industrial district to the south, and a place where migrant workers assemble each morning looking for a day's work. So what's the connecting thread between a church building, a series of rock clubs, and some restaurants? I guess you could say they're all passion projects. Sean Krogan is here, and I'm uh, pretty excited, actually, uh, both in my role as the interviewer and personally as a fan, because he's a legendary part of the Portland rock scene over the past few decades, and and these days he's also a pretty gifted artist, I might say, as well. Um, And in in full disclosure, uh, my partner and I even have one of his artworks hanging in our kitchen. Uh, But Sean's notoriety here starts as a singer-songwriter. As the all-music guide puts it, uh, quote, conceiving original indie pop-inspiring melodies, Sean Krogan brings forth distinct compositions of tuneful rock themes, especially illuminated by his undiminished vocal capabilities. End quote. Uh, Sean's musical path began, if I'm not mistaken, in the 80s with some seminal bands like Hell Cows and uh, especially Cracker Bash, which I think of as following in the footsteps of local punk pioneers uh, like the Wipers. And uh, Sean remained in Cracker Bash from 1989 to 93. And I think really that band was part of what I look back on and we'll get into this as a kind of golden age for for Portland music or indie rock music with 
bands like Heat Miser and the Dharma Bums, the Spinanes and Hazel taking root. Um, Sean was also especially close to the biggest star to come out of that scene, the great Elliot Smith. And uh, But then after Cracker Bash, uh, Sean went on to form the alternative rock outfit Junior High in 1994 and then to record his first solo album in 2001 from Burnt Orange to Midnight, which enjoyed much acclaim as well. And today he continues to be a fixture on the music scene with two bands, uh, there's the Pinnacles, who uh, recorded their most recent album, My, My Oblivion, from 2016. And then there's the Mistons, which are a new project of yours. And uh, like I said, keep an eye out for Sean's artwork. Uh, uh, he also has a show coming up in November at Union Knot. So, Sean, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thanks for having me, Brian. You know, we're here in large part to talk about uh, this one building, La Luna Pine Street Theater. Um, but uh, what are some of the earliest shows at, at any venue? you in Portland you remember going to? I remember um, probably my very first show was at the Calaroga Terrace, um, <laughs> which is an old folks home. Which, yeah. um, the Neo Boys um, managed to get themselves into that building. They, they, they rented their, their ballroom and <laughs> uh, put on a show there under the guise of a teen dance. <laughs> and uh, the, the Neo Boys were all like these, you know, young, younger teenager young women um and so i think they just charmed their way into the building and i think those people probably had no idea <laughs> what was going to happen anyway that was my first my very first kind of punk show i love I it i went to lots of shows at of course at the memorial coliseum uh-huh um i got to see queen there as a as a teenager and then you know there was a lot of like kind of smaller punk venues around in the early 80s the metropolis which uh-huh. is still around as dante's I went to lots of shows there, and uh, also a place called the Thirteenth Precinct, which is up there in in Southwest Thirteenth, right off of Burnside, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I think I don't even know what's in that spot now. But anyway, there was lots of cool little spots like that. Of course, Satyricon for yeah. many years, the X Ray, yeah. and Pine Street La Luna. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I like thinking about the different spectrum of venues, and you know, it's so often these smaller venues that um, are really where you get to see music in a more intimate setting and, and kind of end up being the most special. And sometimes they're they're pretty, you know, stinky and dank and, and you know, uh, you know some people might even say like, you know, this if this is an architecture podcast, why are you doing a about a, a show about a place where you wouldn't want <laughs> to even go to the bathroom? Oh, you know? no, those, 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 those early spots I went to, those life-changing spots for me, especially the 13th Precinct, that was like the real eye-opening spot for me because I got to rub elbows with the the musicians. They were right there. You know, my, my early teenage experiences at being at the Coliseum, like those people were so far away and, and yeah. put so far up on a pedestal that they were untouchable. Whereas mm-hmm. playing, going to the, the 13th precinct, you were right there with your heroes and, and they were like saying like, you're a hero too. And mm-hmm. you know, you're mm-hmm. not, you're not that much different than me. We're the same age. And, you know, start your own band, and and so that's what made those stinky kind of scary spots really super attractive. Yeah, yeah. And what do you remember about uh, maybe it would have been the Pine Street Theater that you would have gone to first, or maybe you just went to La Luna later? But what are your first? What were your first impressions there? And I would love to hear also anything you remember about the neighborhood or what the area was like. Well, my memories of of that building go back to the mid seventies because. My parents were involved in theater in Portland, and there was a theater company that used that space for a while. So oh, yeah. as a little kid, I was in that space hanging around 
when my parents were in plays or where I had like bit parts in plays. So I got to be in that space a long time ago. Oh, neat. And originally I remembered as that space, which it was still an old church building. And on uh-huh. the corner, there was the Ninth Street exit, which was like a hippie, folky place, uh-huh. which I would go get peanut butter sandwiches at. <laughs> um, and there would be... There was like pillows on the floor and tapestries on the wall and uh-huh. hippies, hippies sitting around drinking wine and playing folk music. But so I, I had those memories, you know, as a, as a grade school kid. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until probably I was out of high school that I was back again at that spot. And that's when it was the Pine Street Theater. And mm-hmm. it was, I'm thinking it was probably for um, Los Lobos. Oh. Um, yeah, which was a really great show. And that was the, you know, they were... Still young bucks at that time, uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and had just put out a record on Slash, and so oh yeah, yeah, it was a big crossover thing for punk rockers to kind of get to recognize this Latin-inspired rock and roll from East East LA. Yeah, so that was my first show there, and I just remember initially being blown away because it's like I've been here before as a kid. Like uh-huh. I used to come here all the time. Uh-huh, like uh-huh. I was up on that stage. Yeah, like, I hung out here back of that <laughs> kitchen, but then you know. Over the next couple of years, I started to go to a lot of shows there. I think the the next time I was there for the was for the Violent Femmes. Oh, and at that point in time, they had a stairway that went down one wall, the the west wall, onto the stage from upstairs, and they came marching onto the stage playing flutes and drums, and <laughs> and it was a big kind of entry entrance. Um, so that was pretty phenomenal. Uh. And after that, there was lots of shows. I mean, I saw Who Screwed You there oh. a couple times. I remember I saw them once with Soul Asylum, and Soul Asylum just blew them off the stage. Wow. I got to see the Rats there and a bunch of old kind of Northwest bands like uh, the U-Men from Seattle and, of course, like the the Wipers and uh-huh. Poison ID and bands like that. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, you know, it, it kind of went through a bunch of changes through that time as far as, like, ownership. I think it was Pine Street and then maybe Salazar's and then the Pine Street again mm-hmm. and maybe Rock Candy and before it finally became La Luna when Monkey took over. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they owned the building or they were just leasing the building at that time, but they took it over and they changed it a lot and they put the back bar in um, under the, the mezzanine mm-hmm. and created like the little all age kind of bar area back where um Biwa was at for a while. Right. And they they and you know the entry of that building, the entrance of that building kind of moved from the south side to mm-hmm. the 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 east side of the building and I think at one point in time it was even on the north side of the building. So they met they tried a bunch of things until they finally kind of decided like all right, we're going to put the entrance here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it really worked well. They put the upstairs bar in and then it just became like the best mid-sized club in town for seeing music in. They yeah. moved the stage from one wall to another wall, and that allowed them to put the backstage area by the parking lot. And so it just made it a lot easier for bands, and it really became a great club. Yeah. I can't remember my first time going there after they took it over, but it might have been going to see Screaming Jay Hawkins oh, man. for New Year's Eve um, with my brother and my dad. I put a spell on you. It w- and it was right after um, the Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, Stranger Mystery Than Paradise. Train. Stranger uh, Than Paradise oh, came out. So, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm. Um, I was thinking of him appearing in Mystery Train, right. but you're right. His song use... popular it is sort of if if I close my eyes and somebody says Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, I'll hear that music. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, like as a kid, like I didn't know who he was at all, and my dad had a little bit of 
knowledge about who he was. But anyway, mm-hmm. so we wound mm-hmm. up going to that show, and it was really a magical evening. And this for him as well as for the audience, because he had a really good sized audience, and I guess he'd played to a lot of kind of smaller crowds, and and he had a really large audience that night. Oh, and cool. was super excited and his band was super excited and he played encore after encore after encore and was just really having a great time. You could tell he was really excited as well. That's kind of a statement to the city at that time because yeah. Portland was starved for anything cool. You know, <laughs> our neighbors to the north and our neighbors to the south were by that time getting a lot of good music and art coming through them, whereas Portland was still a little bit like the redheaded stepchild. Yeah, yeah. And then you kind of transition. You become a, a performer on that stage, and and your band, your bands become part of this kind of community of bands. And and I don't want to kind of look too much th- through rose-colored glasses or with only a lens of nostalgia. But um, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, and I feel like uh, a special, like something special was happening in in Portland in some of those years as. Uh, uh, as your band and and certain other bands started to get attention on a you know regional or regional or national way and and it just feels like something special is in the water and it isn't to say like that was the only you know fruitful period or something but what are your own memories about being kind of part of a a community of bands and and having a kind of a collective energy with you know be it Heat Miser or Hazel or some of the other Dharma bums some of the bands that that existed you know, some of your contemporaries it w- it was a special time I mean you're you're absolutely right. And it was one of the many special times that Portland has got to have, you know, a musical era that, that has been a high watermark. Um, and that was just one of them. And I feel pretty lucky to have been there. We were very fortunate to be around at that point in time. So mm-hmm. because Portland still was an affordable pay- place. So there was lots of musicians moving here. I mean, honestly, I, I listened to a lot of, of my Cracker Bash material and I kind of like shrug that at that the amount of success we got i i am kind of a little bit surprised sometimes and and you know that's not to to diminish my 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 two cohorts in that project's hard work and talent i mean it's mostly just kind of directed at myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i think it was a special time and i guess my point is that it was a special time that that being passionate about something you didn't have to be the most talented person in the room mm-hmm. um to to get someplace with that and mm-hmm. and I think that there was a lot of young very passionate people that had the that were fortunate enough to live here at a time when it was still inexpensive and so you could dedicate your time to your art and your music and going out and to see lots of art and music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I worked a part time job and went out five nights a week to go see bands play yeah. and you know had band practice a few nights a week with a couple different bands with Cracker Bash and with the Hell Cows and you know, I had friends that were doing art at the same time or doing dance or yeah. whatever they were doing, pursuing their careers in law. And you could afford to do it, live a, a pretty in a pretty decent situation yeah. and not have to work all the time. So, I mean, that it was a big luxury of having time and the luxury of having people like Mon Key around. Mm-hmm. Um, Mon Lux and Quinn, like without those two guys, they were the guys that really decided that there was these smaller venues like Satyricon where lots of local bands were playing and places like X-Ray that was the all-age venue that that local bands were playing. But there wasn't like a medium-sized venue that was still, that was giving 
these local bands the stage. Yeah. And they kind of were like, these bands are talented enough and we could make sure that they have a draw, create the draw, and give them the opportunity that, that there could be an all-local band show with three local bands, Spinanes mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and and Heat Miser and Calamity Jane, and it could sell out. Yeah, yeah. It could sell out a, a venue the size of La Luna and make those bands important and make like local kids actually care about them, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a great time. I, I mean... We we don't have that right now, it, to my knowledge. I think that there's a great garage and basement, you know, scene in Portland that still goes on with young people supporting each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, but there's not like medium-sized venues kind of saying like, let's we want to give you that space, yeah, to do that and to make you more important than national bands. And sometimes it's like, you know, like the national band came through and it didn't sell out, mm-hmm. whereas we had three local bands play of young people's music and it totally sold out with other kids and other people who care about that. And now I have to ask you about one specific show that happened at La Luna, if I'm not mistaken, which I've watched on YouTube many times and and a lot of people seem to know about and uh, I just get a smile on my face, which is this Devo tribute. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I believe it was, let's see, you, Elliot Smith, um, was it Pete Krebs was no, uh, Pete not was Pete a part of it. Oh Sam no, uh, Chris Sugo Slusarenko, Slusarenko, yeah. and Nate, the Slusarenko brothers, and they were the masterminds behind all of that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh Chris and Nate were our lifelong Devo fans from you know when they were kids and the first record came out, or probably before that. They probably yeah. knew about them. Uh-huh. Um, and so X Ray had lost their space um, downtown uh-huh. and they put on a talent show at La Luna. So it was mm-hmm. the X-Ray talent show at La Luna. <laughs> and they just, they got Sam and Elliot and I to be involved. And I knew, I knew Sam definitely better than Elliot, but I knew who, I, I play shows with Heatmeister quite a few times, but Elliot was a pretty quiet guy. So yeah, that, getting to do that was kind of my first introduction to knowing Elliot and uh-huh. Uh-huh. being buddies with him a little bit. Um, but yeah, so they decided to put this on and we learned a handful of Devo songs mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the brothers S, you know, went out and bought radiation suits <laughs> and whatever else we needed to have for the night and uh-huh. taught us our our lines and our, you know, choreography, whatever, uh-huh. our blocking. Uh-huh. And uh and we did a, a an you know, I'll give us a C, except for <laughs> the Slusarenko brothers did a great job. Yeah, but an A f- A plus for the kind of the the novelty and execution in some ways. Right. Yeah, I I can't watch that video because I spend about like about half the video back by my amplifier trying to tune up my guitar. <laughs> I don't know if I didn't have a tuner or what the problem was, but it, it, it's it's unbearable for me to watch. <laughs> and, you know, uh, um, speaking of Elliot playing at La Luna, you know, I associate him uh, performing there. Was it like up on the mezzanine? Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm interested in how the mezzanine may have also acted as a kind of smaller subspace for performance as well. Well, because yeah, you're right. Because for a long time, the mezzanine was either just closed off, or for a while, it would just be used for if it, if the shows were super crowded, they would put people up on the in the mezzanine as well. Yeah, that's where I saw from Fugazi from. Right, and you could sit up there. And after they put that upstairs bar in there, I think they decided that this would be another potential performance area for like maybe like midweek shows where they couldn't. Maybe it wasn't financially smart to use the downstairs stage because it was just too much space and mm-hmm. the, I definitely remember shows where it would be 
a midweek show and it kind of like you know like they're they're doing their utmost to support local bands and, mm-hmm. and there's like 20 30 people showing up and wow. so it was kind of dismal but if you do that upstairs it was definitely a lot more you can make it a lot more intimate feeling yeah and so they started doing some shows up there i think the first one we did was like a country show where a bunch of people learned some country covers and i played <laughs> With some of my buddies, and I think Elliot played by himself and did some Hank Williams songs. Yeah, there's a great Hank Williams cover, uh, All My Rowdy Friends. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, not the Monday Night Football song, but, but the, no, the original the, song it was based off of. Right, yeah. We did that thing up there, and that kind of wound up working out really well. They brought in a bunch of hay bales for the night. They mm-hmm. called it a, a, a hoot nanny or something like that. And <laughs> But there's, there's like the really famous kind of the Elliot show where... It was the big turnaround. It was the, suddenly like the the jar had lid had popped off, and yeah. everyone found out about Elliot. And, yeah, because it was so surprising to people that that this this band Heat Miser was producing this this delicate, almost McCartney esque uh, solo acoustic songs mm-hmm. uh, from this same person. Oh yeah, well it was surprising, and, and it, but it had been happening for a long time. Like Elliot was. Elliot and I and a bunch of other of our friends, you know, Rebecca Gates and Pete Krebs were playing these acoustic shows. Um, Sarah Short, God, I'm trying to think of all the people that were part of that early acoustic scene down at the Umba Penumbra, yeah. which, you know, sat like 10 people. You, you couldn't really get much more than 10 yeah, people. Yeah, kind of near lodge. Powell's, right? Near Powell's down there. Yeah, Downtown. I think it's outside in now, um, part of that. that Or like a Salvation Army thing Salvation too. Army yeah. building, yeah. Uh, um, but those, like, you know, he was doing that for like a year or two and there was just a handful of people coming down to these shows. And, you know, by then he had obviously done the first, he had done the Cavity Search record mm-hmm. here in town and then he had done the first Kill Rockstars record. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Gus had used Say Yes and those songs for... Um, uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. And so that's kind of when it really... yeah started to feel like and I, and I might be getting my time frame wrong he, I mean it might have like locally kind of hit earlier just because as as it would have tended to happen yeah anyway. and he put out a I, he had a couple albums out by the time uh, Goodwill Hunting would have come out right. but it seems like it was something that was steadily building and, and the shows were getting bigger and bigger and, and that sort of thing right. at least I'd read and then he did that upstairs show and it was really it was like almost like scary in a way which I know is a funny way to put it, but his command of the audience was so great without without much effort on his part. He was just he was such a good musician and and good songwriter that that he really did just enchant the audience. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time for me seeing a local performer that just shut the whole audience up. Mm-hmm. And especially we've been doing acoustic music for a while and I had just gotten used to the the murmur of people holding conversations, which people are entitled to do at a bar or a show, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. there to be with your friends and, and have an experience and that's what you want to do. You talk. So, you know, we'd all kind of like, all right, you have to deal with this if you're playing quiet music. That's why we always played loud before yeah, you, could, yeah. you could out shout the audience. <laughs> um, and so he starts playing and everyone just sits down on the floor and it's a, it's a full room of people sitting on the floor and just totally being totally silent. Wow. At one point in time, I, I mean, it kind of made me just kind of shaky almost. It was mm-hmm. like, it was really an intense experience and I had to leave. I just, I left the room and just like, all right, it's, it's, 
you know, I have been the lucky recipient of having this around me just for a handful of people for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's been mine and a small handful of people's. And now it's suddenly it belongs to the world. And mm-hmm, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that thing of like, I was the first on my block to know about that. I know, I know. But you have to, I mean, for me, it was exciting and scary because it was like, whoa, like, look how powerful this is. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and we were right. It is that good. Yeah. It and, is that good. And, you know, of course, we uh, just passed what would have been his 50th birthday not long ago. And, uh, you know, it's impossible, of course, to know how much or how little uh, a musician is going to endure over time. And we're also having a, a, a context now of, of, you know, rock, guitar rock, not necessarily being what a lot of kids listen to. And, and yet mm-hmm. um, I do still feel like, at least so far, you know, in these um, in this decade plus or after his death, it feels like um, he so far has been someone that endured. Like uh, I remember... Uh, last year I was reading an article in the Guardian newspaper from London and, and it was talking about um, how Bob Dylan had re- received a, a Nobel Prize and, and who else ought to, if, what other great songwriters might someday receive one. And this, you know, Elliot Smith is Bob, not Bob Dylan, nobody is, and, and nobody's saying he's going to receive the Nobel Prize anytime soon. It was kind of absurd to talk about it in a way. But, you know, here was, you know, one of the great news- newspapers of the world and somebody saying that you know, I put Elliot Smith on a uh, in the same basic zip code as as an icon like Bob Dylan because he's that good of a songwriter and the songs are that timeless. And so, absolutely, you know, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't argue. I would not. Ar- I mean, you know, and I know that I'm biased to a, a degree, but mm-hmm. I'm also, I, I'm just a fan too of 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 good music. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of great 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 music that i come back to again and again and he is one of those people that i come back to again and again and mm-hmm. he's one of those people that even if i didn't know him i would come back to again and mm-hmm. again because he's that his quality is that high mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it takes a special talent to make the complex simple mm-hmm. he's definitely he's i mean like comparing him to paul mccartney is not like out of the question i mean and and i think if had he lived longer you know he would have he would continue to prove that Mm -hmm. and his influence i think is all around us i i i still have people who reach out to me because of knowing the sharp very very when i think about it very very short time i spent with him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i continue to hear his influence in music of all kinds too which Mm -hmm. you know which there's a there's a whole new genre of of they don't even call it hip hop. It's just like this, you know, emo kind of homemade electronic hip hop influenced music. And and I'm always like, that's Elliot. <laughs> if Elliot was around now, he would maybe it wouldn't be guitars. He would be manipulating other sounds, mm-hmm. and he would be, you know, he would be this kid who's the next wave. You know, I haven't heard the person that's of that quality in that mm-hmm. music yet, but there will be that person who yeah, takes that genre to that level. Of genius as well, and I and it, and that kid will be like, yes, this is part of my influence. You yeah, know, I think this is in my tool bag of things that went into my ear that that remain in my ear. Yeah, 
Yeah. I was interested in thinking about the La Luna building now and the fact that there's this La Luna cafe there and there was the Simpatica dining hall before that. And so it has this uh, present day uh, as a food venue. And uh, you've spent a lot of time working in food as well. And you have a long association with one of my absolute favorite places uh, in the city, uh, Escape from New York Pizza. And so what do you make about uh, the the kind of enduring connection between working in food and, and working in music? Music. I, I uh, um, you know, I feel like I've met so many people who have who have who have done both, like you. Yeah, I think that that food service and music. Um, I can't speak to you know to what the experience like is like for young people today, but in my time, definitely it was like definitely hand in hand because food service allowed you the time to play music, mm-hmm. and it was easy to to get a food service job. Um, so. If you wanted to go on tour and maybe you didn't have the most understanding boss, you could quit and come back and into Portland and find another food service job. And a lot of those food service jobs, like Escape from New York, were accommodating to musicians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I know that I worked with half of my coworkers were musicians who were in bands that either toured or played fairly regularly in town. So it it was a perfect fit in a lot of ways. And you, you made tips and so it, it just... You know, all those things that kind of help out for mm-hmm. guitar strings or picks or whatever it might be. And yeah, it was a it was a good good juxtaposition. You know? Yeah. And yeah. You got to create either way. You're uh-huh. either making food or you're making music. So. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe finally, uh, I'd just like to ask you about uh, your artwork now and, and um, you know, maybe about the process and experience of of making art. Like it's, uh, I would imagine, something a little bit more solitary, but you obviously put your heart and soul into it. Like I look at the sort of, you know, quasi-abstract, quasi-landscape painting in my kitchen, and I think about the thoughtfulness that went into that. And I've seen works of yours that um, have a kind of interesting graphic quality that make me think of artists like Basquiat or, you know, so there's an interesting kind of fingerprint that's come together in your art, you know, not all the same fingerprint, but, you know, variations on it. And and um, so, you know, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, how that interest developed and, and um, you know, um, you know, what you get out of it compared to, um, to playing music. Yeah, for me, like art has always been part of one of my many interests, you know, I love the creative process in all of its forms. I love film. I love painting and sculpture and music and mm-hmm. blah, 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 poetry. So from, I had always been there. And, and I think after my father passed away, actually, no, after my father passed away, I realized that it was very important to me. Mm-hmm. And, and what age would that have been? I was 40. So 15 years ago, mm-hmm. um, he loved art and always kind of wanted to pursue it more. And that was one of the pursuits he'd never really put any time into. And so mm-hmm. for myself, I, I decided that I didn't want that to be something that I left untapped. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't want to reach the end of my life and go like, oh, I never tried to do that. I never, I always wanted to to do a painting. I always wanted to do this. and mm-hmm. And I never really never had the nerve or whatever I was too intimidated and so I just decided I was going to start making art every day and I decided like any other pursuit it just was going to take time and so Mm -hmm. I made it a daily practice and it took a long time for it to kind of go anywhere I I go back and I look on my early stuff and I'm just once again I was like oh my goodness that's awful that's just (laughs) totally terrible like Uh what was I thinking but 
you know, it, it, in doing it every day, it just it, it takes it farther and farther. And it made it more personal the more I did it, the more mm-hmm. I understood it, and the more the storytelling became important to me. And it became like a, just another form of songwriting where all those paintings are, are stories. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stories are Portland stories because I was born here in this area and I grew up on Gresham and, you know, I've only lived in Portland other than that. And mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. My the things that influence me are are the things from this place, whether it's like early native mythology that comes from this area mm-hmm. or contemporary architecture or people that I see on the street mm-hmm. or you know memories of eighties in in Portland and how it looked like then mm-hmm. and and so I try to kind of mismatch all these things together and tell a more universal story from a more personal local perspective hopefully yeah I mean, that's the goal is that i want the stories to be universal even though you know you know maybe the setting is is localized and, yeah well it sure works for me and well, uh, uh maybe this is a, a good ending point to just uh stop and say thank you very much for for coming on the show and and what a pleasure and what a treat oh the pleasure is mine Support for this podcast and for X-Ray comes from Mutual Materials, providing masonry and hardscape products to architects, designers, and homeowners. Whether it's brick, block, pavers, retaining walls, or stone veneer, Mutual Materials helps you create long-lasting indoor and outdoor spaces. Visit Mutual Materials' new showroom in Northwest Portland or one of its 18 locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find more information, ideas, and project photos, visit mutualmaterials.com. Mutual Materials, building beauty that lasts. Ben Dyer is here, a native of Hawaii. He's an acclaimed chef and butcher, as well as the co-founder of Portland's Your Neighborhood Restaurant Group. They're creators of La Luna Cafe, as well as the superb restaurant and butcher shop Laurelhurst Market on East Burnside, the Hawaiian restaurant 808, which has locations on East Burnside and Southeast Woodstock, not to mention also Reverence Barbecue in Selwood and two Bigs Chicken locations in Beaverton and soon on Northwest Gleason. Uh, Side note here also, I'm a huge Laurelhurst Market fan in particular. Um, I go there on my birthday, among other occasions. La Luna Cafe in particular is not the first spot uh, even that Ben and his partners have had in that building. It occupies the location of one other uh, great space they opened, uh, Simpatica Dining Hall, which before it closed in 2016 was known during its decade-long run as arguably the best brunch spot in Portland, and I wouldn't argue. So, Ben, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I wonder if you could tell me about some of your first encounters with uh, with La Luna, the the venue or its predecessor, the the Pine Street Cafe. Uh, you know, uh, I think I remember reading uh, in in a previous interview with you that you said you saw George Clinton play there for like three or five hours or something. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I I'm a I have a bit of a soft spot for some of that music myself. And so you know, who who have you seen or who have you forgotten? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, 
I was fortunate enough to come up to that show, the George Clinton show from Eugene, and I, it was at least five hours, maybe six, <laughs> with no set breaks, and um, I thought I was going to die. Like, I, I had to force myself to stop dancing, and then, you know, five minutes later, I'd find myself dancing again because the music is so infectious, wow. but it was it was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. There used to be that little mezzanine uh-huh. uh, upstairs that was all dark, that was pretty dark in there, and there were literally people taking naps in there during the show because it just went on for so long i won't go into too much detail about the state that i was in but i was the show was long enough that whatever i was on wore off well before the show ended oh which funny. was pretty great yeah but, um some of the other shows i saw i i didn't get to come up with I, I didn't see a ton there because it was kind of a special trip to come up to portland but i feel like i saw um black star there most definitely oh. quality and i feel like i might have seen uh, De La Soul there too, Ooh. but um, I, it all kind of blends in after a while. I'm envious. Yeah. I'm envious. I saw a couple good shows myself, uh, uh, Fugazi or Tricky oh. and certain others, uh, but still, uh, I, I would love to have seen um, De La Soul in particular. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that reminds me, I, I feel like I've met over the years a, a fair amount of people who have kind of crossed over between being musicians and working in restaurants. And, and some of that, I suppose, is is understandable, you know, the the flexible hours and, and you know, being a musician, not paying very well, unfortunately. Um, what do you make of that uh, kind of little happy marriage? Well, yeah, definitely. I've worked with a lot of musicians over the years. Uh, my first cooking job in Eugene, I was working with the keyboard player and the saxophone player for the Cherry Pop and Daddies mm-hmm. right after they had their huge hits. Um, I think uh, I think the music or the restaurant industry is a perfect place for people in the music industry to, to find a home. Um, I was just talking to a new cook the other day who was telling me about how she got the cooking bug. And, I, you know, I was like, the beautiful thing about the restaurant industry is it really allows you to kind of Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. You can pretend like you're young forever because it's um, it's generally a fairly young crowd it's pretty easy going it's kind of a late night crowd Mm -hmm. and so it gives you a lot of opportunity to continue to have fun in your life Mm -hmm. a lot longer than some other industries might Mm -hmm. I, i feel like restaurants are a really good place for artistic people. It's one of the only arts that appeals on all of the senses. Mm-hmm. So is there like a frustrated musician in you at all? <laughs> I wish that there was, a, there is a frustrated musician in me, but the frustration mostly comes from a lack of being able to play any instruments with any sort of acuity. And, and you know, it, it, I kind of laugh thinking about this because I fall into this too, but I think in addition to being, to the restaurant industry being a home for musicians, it's it's a home for liberal arts majors like myself, yeah, you know, without you know a doubt. psychology or in my case, politics or literature, you know, uh, it's sure. a safe haven, but that's part of the fun. You know, people talk about a restaurant being a little bit like a kind of pirate ship or something like that, but it's also, you know, I think of a restaurant I worked at after college and, and there were two former college professors sitting there like frying sausages and reading the New Yorker magazine. And that right. was in a small town, and so it felt like a kind of intellectual safe haven You're in totally addition right. to it, everything else. It's one of the things I've appreciated the most about the industry is it is a welcoming home to everybody. You can be a high school dropout. You can have a Ph.D. It doesn't matter. You're all kind of there with a common cause, and it's something that you can um, 
as long as you have the attitude and aptitude, it can, it can be a, a good home for you and uh, have a big future for you. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you about this building in particular, whether it's wearing the Simpatica hat or, or La Luna Cafe. Like, um, uh, what was intriguing or what was difficult about, um, you know, transforming it and giving it a new life like this? Yeah. So after the venue closed down for the last time, it was Pine Street and then it was La Luna and then it was Pine Street again and then it closed and the building was purchased by its current owner. And he wanted to have a restaurant in the space, in the boiler room in Mm -hmm. the back and had put an ad on Craigslist saying that he was looking for a chef. And my uh, former business partner and I have responded to it and um, went to check it out. And we did a walkthrough and it was pretty surreal because we walked in and they were dismantling the stage. They had ripped everything out. Just the stage was standing, but mm-hmm. and they were kind of pulling that apart. The light bars were literally coming down as we were walking through the room, and it was really cool to be in there. It had been a few years since I'd been in there, and um, it was really neat to walk in and be like, oh, I remember watching that show in that corner, and I was standing in that spot for that show, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was pretty great. And to have the opportunity to open a business in that space uh, felt pretty special to be sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And did you feel like Simpatico was an instant success or uh, how did how do you feel like uh, that narrative went in terms of the trajectory of that of that business? It was uh, totally a case of being in the right place at the right time. Portland was the food scene in Portland was blowing up at that time. Mm-hmm. And the national trends that were on, that were kind of on the leading edge at that moment were just happened to be a lot of the things that we were doing and that we were interested in. Mm-hmm. Meat became super popular mm-hmm. in the mid, uh, mid 2000s. And um, nose to tail meat too. Yeah, for sure. And we were doing all that stuff. So it, we, we happened to have the right idea in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And being in a historical building like... La Luna, Pine Street, um, certainly didn't detract from our opportunity to explore that a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. Um, given the name of your your group, the 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 Your Neighborhood Restaurant Group, I I, I wanted to kind of ask you about um, the importance of of neighborhoods as it relates to not just this business, but some of your other restaurants. You mm-hmm. know, and and you know, I was thinking about some of the restaurants you have. I. I, if I'm not mistaken, three different restaurants say that are either on or near Burnside, and and depending on what stretch of it is, that that can be a different thing. Like Lower Burnside is kind of more urban with the arcades, but then up near Laurelhurst Market, you're getting into this kind of idyllic streetcar suburb, you know, mm-hmm. residential neighborhood, and and then you know, um, but you can also find neighborhoods that are are worth starting a business in, in in Beaverton or you know suburban locations as well, and so you know. Um, in a more broad sense, beyond La Luna, what are you looking for in, in a location? Uh, I imagine like walkability, or you know, thinking about what the demographics are, or that kind of thing. Or is it more just going with your gut? Uh, I would say it's definitely a combination of, of all of the above. Uh, Laurelhurst Market was our first restaurant project, and we went into that project without even really a clear goal of what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. We found the building first, and from the location and all the factors that went into it. Then we came up with a concept for what kind of restaurant. We had a whole lot of ideas, <laughs> but really we tried to craft something that would suit that location. Yeah. And I think we, um, I, maybe luck, maybe some measure of skill or talent or something, but uh, it, it really worked out, I would say, beyond our wildest dreams for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, the, the really the, the 
the biggest goal out of all of them is has been to open a quality neighborhood restaurant mm-hmm. because fame comes and goes if you're lucky people mm-hmm. care but if you can open a quality neighborhood place mm-hmm. you will be open forever mm-hmm. and so that has kind of been the goal from day one so we kind of just we look around at at neighborhoods that we feel are underserved there are still a few neighborhoods in the city that have a lot of folks living in them and still need some good places to go eat. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. Uh, opportunities are going away very quickly, but there's still a few spots. We, um, we're we building our uh, Big's Chicken out on Northeast Gleason again. Mm-hmm. We opened there two years ago. We were open for about three months, and then it burned down. And we're really looking forward to being back in that neighborhood because that's still that kind of stretch from over by Providence and uh, east of there. There's not a lot going on over there still mm-hmm. for the last Big's Chicken that we opened, we opened in Beaverton, which was our first foray into the, into the suburbs, and that's been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Portland is pretty saturated at this point, but yeah. there are still a lot. I think the suburbs are, are the next wave for sure, and you're going to see a lot of the kind of more well-known Portland chefs opening more places in the suburbs, for yeah. sure. Yeah. How has the neighborhood around La Luna and La Luna Cafe changed, and, and what are your memories of it when you first got there, that the blocks around it, and, and uh, versus how it is today? It is definitely changing. Um, it's still, I think it's going to look even more different in the next five years or so. Uh, it's It was a pretty gritty place, and uh, when we had Sympatica Dining Hall, we would have special events in there, and people would host wedding parties and stuff like that, and I definitely know there were a few parties that we didn't get because people just didn't really feel comfortable with having all their guests walking around in that neighborhood late at night. (laughs) It's gotten better to be sure. It's still a little gritty, but that area for sure is going to look very different in the next couple of years. You bet. Well, uh, I've asked you most of the questions I intended, but I just want to close by asking you um, whether it's at Big Chicken or or La Luna Cafe uh, or otherwise, what are a couple of dishes that um, you guys have been able to conjure that, that people are really the most nuts for? I like to think that each location has its kind of special items. Um, and it just depends on who you ask, I think. I know for myself, being from Hawaii, I opened, I wanted to open 808 because that was kind of the food I wanted to eat every single day. and uh, Spam included? Oh, God, yes. The spam, for sure. <laughs> the people who don't eat, who have never tried spam should at least be open to trying it. There's a lot of people who say no. Won't have the musubi because uh, it's got spam in it, but man, you are missing out. <laughs> that is one of the dishes for sure. Uh, Well, thank you very much for joining us on In Search of Portland, Ben. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks to Sean Krogan and thanks to Ben Dyer for talking about the Pine Street Theater building in its different eras as a hive of creativity. I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the tenants operating out of the building today in addition to the La Luna Cafe. Let's start with the additional food and drink tenants on the ground floor. There is Bar Casavalli, which Kenton Weens, the building's owner, founded with restaurateurs Nate Tilden and Marty Schwartz, the people behind spots like Clyde Common and Olympia Provisions. Bar Casavalli was named Willamette Week's Bar of the Year in 2017 and named to its Best Restaurants list the same year. There's also the Scotch Lodge, opened earlier this year by Tommy Cluse, formerly of La Moule, which 
Portland Monthly named the city's best new bar. There is Arizo, also opened earlier this year, by chefs Jacob Harth and Nick Van Eck, which the Portland Mercury called the ocean-to-table seafood restaurant Portland's been waiting for. And there is the Wine and Spirit Archive, a school and resource center for wine enthusiasts, founded by Mimi Martin. The Pine Street Theater building has some creative tenants upstairs as well. There is a Portland outpost for IDW, an award-winning San Diego-based publisher of comic books and graphic novels. They publish licensed comic book versions of Disney characters as well as brands like Dungeons & Dragons, The X-Files, Ghostbusters, G.I. Joe, and Back to the Future. There is Another Feather, the studio of jeweler and designer Hannah Ferrara. There is East Bank Communications, an advertising agency with a spectrum of local clients from furniture stores to plant nurseries to acupuncturists. There is a software development company called VistaLogic. And perhaps best of all, there is Night Flight, a performance company and teaching studio specializing in aerial and circus arts. If you go there, you can see a series of trapezes and aerial ropes suspended from new seismically stabilizing steel beams. I'm not trying to give free advertising by naming all these businesses and describing them, but I love considering that vibrant life the building is living today against some of that rock history, for example. Take one infamous show from 1987 when post-punk pioneers The Replacements played, not by anyone's estimation, one of their best shows, but rather a drunken mess that the band's frontman, Paul Westerberg, later wrote a song about called Portland that appeared on a B-Sides collection with the chorus of Portland, We're Sorry, as the song runs out. The Replacements' next album, 1989's Don't Tell a Soul, has the words, We're Sorry, Portland, etched into the vinyl. So what happened exactly? According to one recollection I read, the band broke into a room above the theater and found a chest with costumes in it. Paul Westerberg walked on stage wearing a cloak and a crown, but he was so drunk that the band could barely play. At one point, they threw all of their clothes into the audience, which responded by throwing their clothes back at them. One band member, Tommy Stinson, suddenly remembered he had 10 bucks in his pocket, stepped to the mic, and asked for the pants back. Then, in a stroke of inspiration, he rifled through the pile of clothes until he found a $20 bill in someone's pocket, which he triumphantly showed to the audience and did a little victory dance. But the telling is a little different from Scott McCaughey, a member of the opening band that night, the Young Fresh Fellows. In the break between sets, he recalls, Stinson suggested the replacements should play their set in the Young Fresh Fellows' clothes. McCaughey says, quote, "'Dutifully, we all swapped clothes.' I didn't quite fit into Paul Westerberg's pants, but it seemed a trivial detail at that point. Besides a medieval costume garment of mine, Paul took the rest of the clothes from my tour bag with him on the stage, as a backup, I suppose, like having a spare guitar. That would be the last I would see of said clothing, as the band stripped down during their set and jettisoned item after item into the audience. I hope somebody got good use out of them, although the smell might have diminished their desirability, even as souvenirs." The havoc on stage was far from the only issue that night. An unconfirmed report says the venue refused to pay the replacements for their set, which sent them into a destructive rage. In the dressing room upstairs, there was a chandelier that Paul Westerberg tried to swing from like Tarzan, which of course came crashing down. Then the band took the big couch that was there and threw it out the window. And that's just one particularly notorious night involving a legendary band. What about another one, say Nirvana? When the band played the Pine Street Theater on February 9, 1990, 
It was just a few months after the release of their debut album, Bleach, and I'm happy to say that you can hear the whole show today. In 2009, Sub Pop Records released a 20th anniversary edition of Bleach that includes a recording of the complete show at the Pine Street Theater. 19 months later, Nirvana released its seminal album, Nevermind, and just four years after that 1990 show, Kurt Cobain would be dead. Nirvana wasn't the only band that eventually released music recorded at this venue. Cobain's wife, Courtney Love, and her band Hull recorded an early live album there in Violet Rose in 1993. And as it happens, Cracker Bash, the band fronted by our guest Sean Krogan, recorded its farewell show at La Luna in 1994. It also turns out that the best concert I ever saw in my life was at La Luna, and it's another live show that you can listen to today. It was recorded on November 2nd, 1995, by a band from Washington, D.C. that, with apologies to Nirvana and Sonic Youth and a few others, was arguably the greatest punk band of the 1990s, Fugazi. I remember telling a friend that accompanied me that night that I felt like I had been electrocuted. I remember claiming a spot in the front of the balcony, giving me a perfect view as the band tore into an explosion of guitar feedback and the song, Do You Like Me?, and Guy Picciotto sang, Your eyes, like crashing jets, fixed in stained glass, but not religious. I think that line actually sums up the history of the Pine Street Theater building in a way. When you see a great show, whether it's rock or hip-hop or jazz or electronica, I refuse to acknowledge country, it's one of the most intense yet transporting experiences you can have, a moment of transcendence, not unlike what we seek from religion. It's not to say that Nirvana or Fugazi or George Clinton or The Replacements or Elliot Smith are apostles or prophets, but it can feel that way sometimes. Unfortunately, rock stars also sometimes become martyrs who die tragically young, as Cobain and Smith did. But that only makes spaces like the Pine Street Theater and La Luna all the more special because they hosted fleeting moments of genius. With that in mind, I'll leave you with a few lines from my favorite song by one of those martyrs, the late great Elliot Smith. This is from the song No Name Number no. Three from his debut album, 1994's Roman Candle. We arrived too late. Our mouths were opening. I turned off the light. So, come on, night. You're a witness, you. You've seen me interrupt a good old-fashioned fight. So, come on night everyone is gone home to oblivion home to oblivion home to oblivion watched the dying day blushing in the sky everyone is uptight so come on night quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. 
In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Amalia Boyles, Ed Curtis, and Chase Spross. A big thank you as well to my musician friends in the band Beauty Pill, and particularly songwriter Chad Clark for graciously allowing us to use one of their songs for our podcast theme. Thanks as well to Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo. And thanks to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artwork to go with each building and episode. That artwork can be found on our website. And in fact, you can find every episode of In Search of Portland at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show so far, you might consider leaving us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts or any of the ilk. And if you've made it this far, thanks again for listening. And please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Bye-bye for now.